0: For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of Christ in Him. What an amazing truth. Thank You, Lord, for the cross. Tonight we're going to be in Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. And we will again have another Sunday night service that's a little bit out of the ordinary. I'm going to talk you through a little bit uh, through my trip to India and through some passages of Scripture that God used to minister to me. And hopefully we can grow in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord and understanding. And we can, our hearts hopefully can be moved towards what God would have us to accomplish, not just here, but around the world, for His glory. Acts chapter 17. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank You, Lord, for the gospel... And I thank You, Father, for the way it stretches my life in ways that make me uncomfortable, Lord. I thank You for the way that You, you push me under the pressure and the weight of the gospel. Father, I thank You for this church. And I thank You, Lord, that there are amazing things happening here. Father, that this is a place where people have a desire to see You made known in places where You are not. And I'm very grateful, Lord, to be among a people who have a passion and a zeal for Your glory around the world. And Lord, I pray You would continue what You have begun. And Father, that we would magnify Your name from this place this one simple place on a little road in a country town. God, will You help us to pray big prayers, to dream big dreams, because You are a magnificent God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I want to begin tonight by just sort of talking you through a couple things. I want you to understand some things about... um, my trip to India and about my mindset going to India and sort of help you um, sort of walk through this with me. Um, I know there's a lot of people in here that who understand um, why we do the things we do. And then there's other people who maybe think they understand but aren't really sure. And then there's some of you who just, let's be honest, you think I'm crazy and that's okay. But I want you to know first and foremost that I'd I do not enjoy going halfway around the world. I do not enjoy being thrust into this totally crazy foreign culture. I do not enjoy being away from my wife and children. I do not enjoy being away from you. I don't enjoy that. I enjoy seeing God glorified. And I enjoy being open to what He has for me and I enjoy watching you be open to what God has for you. And so um, I'm not crazy unless crazy is just crazy in love with Jesus because that I am guilty of. And so I, I ask myself questions when God begins to stretch me in ways that I am maybe not comfortable with or maybe... Um, You know, it's just, I think, Lord, now, you know, how about later? Later would be good. So I ask myself questions like, do I really want to see the world the way Jesus sees the world? Do I want to see with His eyes? And, And if I do, and if you do, then we have to ask ourselves questions like, for example, do we... Do we really know how we're going to respond to poverty? I mean, what is our response to starvation going to be? How are we as a people of God going to respond to the fact that there are literally millions of people who do not have clean drinking water? Now, you have an option. You can just sort of let that truth wash over you and you can just back away from it and you can just retreat and say, well, I'm just little me and so there's not much I can do about that and you can just go about your business. Or you can think and pray and ponder on that and you can do what I do. You can allow God to conform your heart by by putting my own children in the place of their children and putting my own wife in the place of those women and imagining what it would be like if it were me not sitting over here in this lap of luxury but but where they are and so that's the first question the second question is how are we going to respond to false religion how are we going to respond to people who believe in false gods who worship with all the zeal and passion that you and I worship God with, who worship sometimes and oftentimes with more zeal and more passion than you and I worship God with, how will we respond to the fact that they're worshiping false gods? Now you can again, you can say, well... There's not much I can do about that. But I would ask you, because here's what God presses on my heart. Well, Tony, do you know the Gospel? Well, certainly I know the Gospel. Do you understand the Gospel? Well, certainly I understand the Gospel. Well, then what are the implications of that? It's real simple. What are the implications of what we sing and what we preach and what we say and what we do? And really, what good is it for God to be magnified and glorified if only in this place? If, is, is God's glory to be shut up in this building? Is that what this is all about? You see, because you're, you just have to begin to ask yourself difficult questions. Questions that aren't easy to answer. And here's the thing, I realize that most people are going to fall into two camps. They're either going to fall into the first error, which is this social gospel. People, they're all over the world, there's millions of people, America is riddled with people. Who want to devote their lives to bringing clean water to all people who don't have it, or sending food to people who are starving, or doing this or doing that, and void of the gospel message, it's worthless. It's worthless. But it's equally wrong and equally worthless to err on the other side, to fall into the camp that says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to all these places and we're going to preach the gospel to them, but we're not going to care that they don't have water to drink. We're not going to care that they don't have food to eat. That's worthless and wrong too, because that's hypocrisy. That's not being open and honest with the true gospel, therefore it's not going to have any effect. So the, 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 the Bible calls us to live out the implications of what we say we believe and who we say we are. And, and we, we see time and time again in Scripture this played out for us. And I want us to look today in Acts 17 at Paul's visit to Athens. Now, when when we get to uh, Paul coming to Athens, Paul is really supposed to be taking a break. Paul has been on the run. He's a wanted man. There's a group of people from Thessalonica that want to see him dead, and uh, Barnabas is trying to, you know, keep him out of trouble. And Paul is moving about, and so he ends up in Athens as a place of refuge, a place of rest, a place to to take it easy for a minute. And instead of taking it easy, Paul does what he always does. And I want you to pay close attention as we read Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said... He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing let me read a few verses from colossians chapter 4 listen as paul speaks in the book of colossians he says verse 3 meanwhile praying also for us that god would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make manifest, that I may make known as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom towards those who are on the outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So you can pull up this first picture. As we sort of look at poverty and we look across, this is just a simple one of a million images burned into my mind of just the chaos, the utter chaos of Mfal India. Everything there is just, every road is packed with people and packed with beggars and packed with people selling junk and fixing stuff. And and if it's not full of people who are, are just... Piled on top of each other, it's 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 dirty, it's smelly. When you when I look at that, I just begin to wince at what the smell is of everywhere you turn, of everywhere you look. I remember one. Uh, I was As I was emailing you those stories across the week, and, you know, it would be very intermittent. I mean, one minute I might have internet, I might not have internet. I had to, you know, buy these minutes, and it was just sort of crazy, and God was faithful, and we were able to communicate a little bit. But I got an email from Lisa, and, and she was telling me that, you know, because we were a, a complete day, almost difference, and she, and she was telling me that the, the moon, you were telling me to look at the moon, And I just sort of giggled when I read that. You can't see the moon from India. You can't see anything. There's so much smog over India, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It looks like it's about to pour down rain every moment of every day. You could lay out for a year and never get a tan. The reason they're dark is because they eat all that curry. I mean, it's bad, it's smoggy, it's disgusting, it's horrible. This next picture shows a girl scooping drinking water out of that pool that I sent you a picture of. And this picture, you can actually see a little glimmer of the sun coming through the smog to let you see just how green and disgusting that water is. And what she'll do is she'll scoop that pail and she'll go home and she'll... Strain that water She'll strain all that Slime that's in that pool There's all sorts of garbage At the bottom of that little um, Dugout pit that you can see and She'll strain it And then she'll boil it And then she'll cook with it She'll bathe with it. In fact they bathe without even boiling But they, they'll cook with it And for a week I ate food Cooked in that water Right there so you don't think I pray? Whew. I pray, Lord, you got to protect me. And they boil it. And I ate it. And I'm here, alive. But believe me, sometimes I wonder how. And how do we respond to that kind of poverty or to some grave Depravity. Well, the first thing I want you to see tonight is I want you to understand, we probably won't even ever get through verse 16, but I want you to understand what's behind the scenes what's in Paul's heart, what he understands as you begin to read about what the Apostle Paul is doing in Athens. You know, we could go on all day about the, the unbelievable nature of this passage and all that's accomplished here and all that it's teaching us, but I want you to understand the heart motivation behind missions. I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 1, these verses will come up beginning in verse 3, I want you to see Paul sort of teach us just in this one little passage out of Ephesians 1, what is the preeminent priority in Paul's mind and heart. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Now that's a mouthful, but watch this, comma, to what? To the praise of the glory of His Grace, Paul says, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And so Paul is is bringing our attention to after all this amazing truth that it's to the praise of His glory. Then he comes back in verse 11, same passage, he says, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be "...to the praise of His glory." Then He comes back again, speaking of salvation in verse 14, speaking of how the Holy Spirit seals salvation, guaranteed. And the Bible says that, "...who is the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purpose, purchased possession, you and me through salvation, to the praise of His glory." Paul has a theology that understands that all of life, that everything about being a believer, that the gospel is about the glory of God. And so as he enters Athens... This is His understanding. This is His mindset. And so as I go to India, I go with this understanding, with this mindset. As we go to Brazil, as we go to Moldova, as we go where God calls us, we go understanding that the priority is always God's glory. And that the gospel yields glory unto God. And so we go for this purpose. We're on a mission. We're not there to make converts for ourselves we're not there to make ourselves known we're not there to make our church known we're not there to do humanitarian works we're not there to just come back and report to you what we see we are there for the glory of God and so every step we take everything we do every dollar we invest is for the glory of God and so we always must ask ourselves is what we're doing wherever we're going Yielding glory for God. That is the purpose. Now, behind that, Paul understands that the gospel is unstoppable. You cannot stop the gospel from going forth. Here's the issue for us to reconcile in our hearts. Will we participate? Will we be a part of what God is going to accomplish? Because it's not dependent upon us. It will go forth. And my greatest fear is that I would miss the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing. That people I love and people I know and people that I worship with would miss this opportunity. And that's why it's so precious to me that as I walk the streets of India, in fall India... I knew you were with me. We were together. That so many of you gave sacrificially for me to go. That you were praying for me. That we were one. I could sense your strength and your power as you prayed for me. God was lifting me up and holding me up. And there were days when I wondered if I would have enough energy to continue. But God would strengthen me. And I knew you were praying for me. I knew it. Because you're zealous for the glory of God. And you want to be a part of the unstoppable gospel mission around the world. And so, please hear me. It's not that we all need to go. In fact, really, almost no one in this room needs to go where I was. There's a few, you know, maybe John. John could go... And come with me and be effective where I was. Maybe Richard could go and be effective where I was. But where I was was strictly a teaching ministry. It would have done no good for me to have a team of you uh, with. Because I was teaching and teaching and teaching. And we'll get into that. So my point is that it's different ministries in different places where God has different things going on, but it's always for His glory and it's always about us being a part of the unstoppable gospel message going forward. Now, let's talk for a minute about this message real quickly. I'm not going to get in depth about this, but I want you to understand something, that the message of the gospel is unchanging. It is absolutely, positively unchanging. Now, the way in which we present that needs to be tailored to the people in which we're presenting it to. And that's what this passage in Acts 17 shows beyond a shadow of a doubt. That the person who I remember having a... How can I say this politically correct? I had a nice discussion with a man uh, in seminary in one of my classes. And um, he was sort of absolutely making the point that We just do the same thing. And in other words, his point was this, that the way he worships in his church is the way every church ought to worship. And so he went on this tirade about how, you know, it ought to be this kind of music and not that kind of music and we ought to do this kind of thing instead of that kind of thing. And so I let him go. And when he got to the end, I just raised my hand. I said, sir, I have a question. He said, what's that? And I said, have you ever worshipped in another country? Have you ever been anywhere else? Have you ever, have you ever preached the gospel with a translator? Have you ever worshiped God under a tree in Brazil? Have you ever hid around a, 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 an old raggedy Bible in a basement with a, with a candle in China? And of course, what did he say? No. Well then no wonder you're so ignorant. Because everyone around the world worships God differently. And so to think that you're just going to export this, you know, American or whatever your favorite thing is to wherever you go is utterly and completely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And so, you know, Paul just does such a marvelous job of teaching us here that the message is ever unchanging. It never changes. And when you begin to waver, this is the danger is that people want to make the gospel more, you know, uh, less offensive. They want to make it more user-friendly. See, that's changing the message. You cannot change the message, but you have to understand that you cannot simply go without understanding where you're going and who it is you're talking to. So let's just look at this for a moment. Acts 17, verse 16. Paul, the Bible says now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him while he saw that the city was given over to idols. First of all, this phrase, his spirit was provoked within him. Understand that this is far more than he was angry or he was upset. In other words, as Paul walks into Athens, he sees this people that are just completely riddled with idol worship This The the word given over to idols, this word only occurs here in the entire New Testament. This word, it means utterly and completely overrun. It means that the idol worship in Athens was such that it would have been harder, some people joke, to find a man than an idol. It was ridiculous. They were literally swamped With idols, So now you maybe will begin to understand why this passage of Scripture meant so much to me while I was in India. Because I was in a place literally overrun with idol worship. If you understand anything about the Hindu religion, it's that they have a God for everything. They have a temple for everything. And it is literally overrun with idol worship. You can pull this next slide up where I actually went into the temple of the monkey. And this image that... That You see this man down in the white there kneeling down and he invited me in and I had to take my shoes off and, and go in. and I, it, was, uh, it was just such the providence of God that, that two temples actually invited me to come in. One of them I got to witness a, a service which was a little um, out of the ordinary. Normally they're a little more protective of that, but they were fine with me coming in. And so I go into this temple. This is the temple of Marudi. Maruti is this God, this monkey God, and this. they believe that this monkey God is is a hero. He represents what would be the perfect believer, what would be the perfect follower. And it's a very complex religion because there's all these multitudes of gods, and the gods represent, in actuality, the different facets of the supreme God that conveniently enough, breaks into three persons, if you will. So they, they have their own sort of uh, bizarre trinity, if you will. All false religions in some way, shape or form try to mimic or try to copy the true religion. And so they've done the same thing. But what's interesting is, is that just like in America, most people who are Hindus don't even know what they're supposed to believe. And so as I learned about this religion... Uh, going over there, I found that it was very easy for me to reason with them because they didn't know what they were talking about. And so I was able to reason with them quite easily because I was expecting, uh, to be honest with you, far more of a, of a fight. So Paul, as he enters into this place that is swamped with idols, he is, his spirit is provoked within him. This phrase means so much more than anger. This is the phrase that the Old Testament uses to speak of God's jealous nature. That God is a jealous God. So so yes, He's provoked to anger when He sees people worshiping idols, but it's more than that. It's the pain and the agony of, of, of God the Father seeing people in His jealous spirit, His own creation, worshiping these foolish, foolish idols. And Paul's... Spirit, it's provoked within him. He has great compassion. He has great sadness and great pity towards these people. Now, I've said this before on a number of occasions, and it's important for you to remember this that the opposite of love is not anger. And that's why it's important to understand that Paul is so much more than angry, because the opposite of love is indifference. And you must understand that because it's so important to understanding biblical theology that if you have ever been in love, if you've ever been married, if you've ever had children, then you know that anger is part of love. Amen? Yes. But you still love. And so anger cannot be the opposite of love. Indifference is when we're void of love, we simply don't care. And so Paul's response is... To do something. He responds. His spirit is grieved because of what he sees. And I just wonder, I just wonder as, as we hear these things or think about these things, I wonder, you know, we look at these pictures of these, of people worshiping idols and, and worshiping monkey gods. And you just think, you know, I just, how bizarre. And yet, let me tell you something. To them, it is as real as anything you could possibly imagine. They are utterly zealous to worship these idols. And so Paul must respond because of his... His theology, his understanding that the preeminent priority is the, the glory of God and that the gospel cannot be stopped. And so it pushes him to go forward. So when I'm in a place, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. When I went to the temple of the magpies, that was a, a, a very sketchy situation because that's a very large, elaborate temple. And so here I'm in this, this, this area where there's people who are starving to death in multitudes. And I get to this gigantic temple and there's a big gate across the front and I'm thinking there's no way they're going to let me in and I'm looking through the the bars to see in and a man comes and invites me in. He tells me to take my shoes off. Now understand, I am in a place where 42% of the world's impoverished live in this country. And I am walking in a temple where I literally lost count of my steps. I must have walked... 50 to 75 yards on nothing but pure marble in my socks while people starved to death right outside the gate and that was just that was just leading to the temple that was just sort of the the prelude then when i got into the temple area there were these big magnificent columns And as I began to walk up, I saw people lined up in rows along these columns, bent down on their knees, dressed in their finest clothes that they had, in perfect rows, and in perfect sequence, they would kneel down and kiss the ground. I mean, kiss it. Where they'd all been walking around barefoot, they didn't, they would kiss the ground. And they would over and over, they would kiss the ground, and they would beat these little, these little mallets against these, Brass plates that they had and and so the priest would come out and behind him were these doors open And there's these two giant carnival looking Literally, it looked like a, a a Mardi Gras float these two carnival looking magpies That you if you just saw that you would think this is this is some kind of crazy nursery rhyme or something but no they are so serious and they would kiss the ground and come up and kiss the ground and come up and then after they had given their offering and not just one, they would give money, they would give food, they would give all these different offerings and when they were done giving and all of it was collected and brought into the temple and placed before the magpie, then the priest would come out with this lantern filled with incense and smoke bellowing out of the lantern and as he walked between the rows of worshipers, they would waft the smoke into their knows. They would try to breathe it in and grab hold of it as much as they could. And I asked the interpreter, I said, what is it with the smoke? And he said they believe that the smoke is the blessing of God. The smoke of incense is the blessing of God. And they would try to get as much of it as they could as he passed by. Listen, it just tore me up. It broke my heart. I mean, there was just something inside of me that just wanted to scream. I just thought... Dear God what must you feel like day after day after day of these people who are your creation who 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 were meant to love you and worship you and honor you and they're starving and dying at the hands of worthless meaningless idols I mean it was just one of the most horrific experiences of my life and so Paul is confronted with this level of idolatry and he is just moved to, to the extent that he must do something. So what does he do? Well, the Bible says in verse 17, Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue. You see, He went into the churches and He reasoned with the Jews there and He shared the gospel there and with the Gentile worshipers. He reasoned with them and He shared the gospel there. But then look at what He does. Then He goes into the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. And here's where God just began to work on my spirit. As I've gone over and I've traveled all this way to teach and train pastors, I couldn't escape the reality that Paul didn't merely teach in the church. You see, because the, the, the Baptist church there is, it's a, it's not a, it's not a safe place to be a Baptist. It's not a safe place to be a tall, blonde-headed American. And, So they would bring us in and they would put us behind these big walls. They'd beat the horn and somebody would look out and the gate would open and we'd go in and and back in there would be this compound where pastors would come and get trained and and learn, you know, about the gospel. and, And they're actually getting seminary credit from New Orleans for these classes. And that's why it was so important. I had to teach 20 hours of, you know, and so it was... You know, all their questions were extra. And so we would just go, I mean, literally, they could have just went around the clock like, you know, this guy doesn't need to sleep. And, you know, it was crazy. But my point is this. I'm there and I'm accomplishing what God sent me to do. But I can't escape the fact that that wasn't all Paul did. That daily he went into the marketplace, and let me tell you, I don't want to go in the marketplace. I think I have a picture of the marketplace where there's just junk hanging everywhere and people selling every kind of trinket you can think of. And I don't want to go there. I mean, listen, you can't imagine stick out like a sore thumb like me strolling in the marketplace. But Proverbs 1 says this that wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in open squares. You see, that what God has put in me is not meant to stay there. And it must come out. And so finally, I just... I just realized, you know what, we've got to get beyond these walls. I've got to go out into the marketplace. I've got to reason with people. I've got to share with people. And we started to move into these communities. And then the pastors would invite us to come to their little area and, 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 and walk through their community where they'd have a little church where people would just essentially pay them no mind. So long as the little church didn't make a lot of noise, as long as the little church didn't make a big ruckus, it was okay to exist. But if they got out of line, there was going to be trouble. Well, here's what would happen. You see, I would encounter people that believe in all these multitudes of gods. Now, It dawned on me quickly, fairly quickly, that they were just like Americans and uh, most people don't know exactly what they believe or why they believe it. They just sort of say that there's something that they're not really sure why they are. And most Hindus are only Hindu because their parents are Hindu and because if they don't say they're Hindu, then they're going to be, you know, persecuted or beat or cast out of the family or whatever the case may be. So I began to talk to him. So it just, God just began to give me wisdom to reason. And here's what I would say. I would sit in their living room. They would invite me in, of course, because, you know, hey, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to have a big American in your living room. So they invite me in. Of course, they all sit on stools about this high. So I'm like, you know, in the nursery stool and I'm sitting there like a, you know, like grape ape or something on this little thing. And so they'd invite me in and we'd begin to dialogue. And here's what I would say. I would say, now let me, let me ask you a couple questions. You believe in the monkey God. Yes, I do. You believe in the magpie God. Yes, I do. You believe in the multitude of all these various gods. Yes, I do. Now I would say, now, there's the God of fertility and the God of this and the God of that. Yes, I believe in all that. Now, let me ask you a question. Isn't it interesting that all these gods represent different things in creation? Well, yes, that's because, you know... Okay, great. Now, isn't it interesting that all of creation seems to work together in harmony? I mean isn't it interesting that the rain falls at the right time and the plants know how to grow on their own and one animal eats another animal eats another animal eats another, and the food chain all works together and I begin to say now isn't it interesting that all those things work together isn't creation an amazing thing you know it just it sort of just goes on its own isn't that amazing yes it's very amazing well let me ask you a question if all those things were governed by different gods would they work together in perfect harmony well, I've never really thought of it that way. Well, you ought to, because I'm here to tell you about the God that's over all of that. I'm here to tell you about the God who's over all the things that you think your gods are over. The one God who reigns over all creation. He's the firstborn. He is the one, the only. You see, and now we've got a dialogue going because now they're tuning in. You see, you, you have to know... Who you're talking to? You have to. You, it, it comes with a broken heart for people. It comes with a with an understanding that that the gospel is going forth. God, just I know you're doing it. I just want to hitch my wagon to you. I just want to go where you're going. And so when God gives us the opportunity, we go. Now, now listen. For you and for me, here's the thing we need to remember. Paul didn't just reason in the synagogue. Let me rephrase that. You ought not just reason at Michael Memorial. You need to reason with people who are worshiping idols and worshiping false gods that are in the marketplace daily, that are at your job, that live in your neighborhood, that this is a, this has a multitude of implications for you and me as we live here. That this isn't just about, oh wow, look at us, we go to India, we go to Brazil, we go to Moldova. No, do we go to work? Do we go to school? Do we go to Walmart? But you've got to know who you're talking to. I, all I can tell you is this. It looks different for every one of us. This is one of the things that God began to show me with this text is that you know what? That, that's the beauty of the Bible, that God calls us to do things, but He doesn't tell us exactly how to do them. You know why? Because the way I witness is different than the way Brother Donnie witnesses and the way Brother Wade witnesses and the I mean, so on and so forth. It's different. In other words, we're different people. We speak differently. We come in contact with different people. We're in different arenas and different areas. And so God will use you in places He won't use me and He'll use me in places He won't use you. And that's the beauty of it. You see, He doesn't give us this blueprint, just do these five things. Why? Because it won't work without a broken heart. If your heart is broken for the lost... Then you can begin to walk in the power and strength of God to begin to reason with people in the synagogue, reason with people in the marketplace daily. Well, listen, let let me just explain a, a, a quick principle to you. We'll be wrapping this up. There's a number of reasons why. It's very important for you to understand why we don't go to India and have crusades why we don't go to Brazil and have crusades. There's a lot of people out there doing a lot of things and they will tell you on television or send you pamphlets about their ministry and about how they've had hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ in Brazil or hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ in India. And there's a reason why we don't do that. And I want you to understand. I want you to understand why. I mean, there's some simple reasons, like, for example, here's my heart. Who's going to disciple them? What what are you what are you doing? In other words, you don't go there and have a big show and try to get a bunch of people to make a decision and then fly back to your comfortable place in America. What you do is you go there and you invest in a local pastor because that pastor is going to be there. He's going to be in the trenches. He's going to be discipling and praying and and meeting needs and working and that's the, the, the message that we have to understand. I want to show you this real briefly in 2 Kings chapter 5. These verses will come up. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Naaman the leper. Naaman, this is just such a great passage of Scripture. Naaman was a Syrian military leader. He was a very powerful, wealthy, influential man but he had leprosy. And so... Naaman has a problem that there is no cure for and Naaman hears that there's a man There's a there's a prophet of god in this strange and foreign land named elisha who can help him So he loads up all his men and all his money and all his stuff and he begins to make a long journey To elisha's house and when he gets there elisha tells him well, you need to go dunk in the river Well, he doesn't like that In fact, he gets furious because he's thinking, here I drove all this way. You don't even come out and greet me, dunk in the river. I've got those kind of, I've got rivers cleaner than the Jordan River in my, uh, country. So that's just ridiculous. But he finally humbles himself, dunks himself in the river. God heals him. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see his response. Naaman responds after God heals him and after God heals his heart. Now here's what he does. 2 Kings 5.15 Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, track with me. Here is a Syrian who is a foreigner. He's in a foreign land and he has discovered that there is the true God. And he's been healed. But what does he do? You see, this is so critical for us because we are so guilty in America of this very thing we think that what naaman would do is go elijah can i just stay here with you because now that i'm a christian now that i've been healed now that i know this is the land of the true god i don't want to go back there because there's a bunch of mean scary pagans in syria no that's not what he does because isn't it true that we come to christ or someone gets and we want to just put them in a cage and hide them You know, well, what you need to do is just live in a Christian incubator for the next 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, and then maybe you'll be mature enough to, you know, teach a Sunday school class. No. Naaman doesn't do that. Nor does he say, well, I'm going to go home, but I'm the Syrian commander, and part of my job is every day I have to go with the king to worship the Syrian god, Rimon. So I'm not going to do that anymore because now I know that there's the true God. So I'm not, I am not—I wouldn't dare go in the temple of Rimon. He doesn't do that either. See, he doesn't reject the culture altogether and he doesn't embrace the culture altogether. He does the most unusual thing. He says in 2 Kings 5.17, Then, since all of this has occurred, if not... Please let me, your servant, be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifices to other gods, but to the Lord. Now let me explain to you what he does. He loads up dirt from Israel. And he takes it back to Syria. And when he goes into the temple with the king to worship the god of Syria, Rimon, he pours the dirt out on the ground and worships the Lord on that dirt. Now, this is not some kind of, you know, superstitious act. You know what this is? A witness. You see, he took what he had and he took it home to a pagan people and then he began to live it out before them. I mean, what a message for us. This is why... We reach and train pastors to reach and train their people. You see, because what you want is people in India saved by the grace of God, worshiping the one and only true God in the context of that pagan nation. You don't want them to all move over here and join our church. And we don't want to go over there and try to be their God. You see, what you want to do is you want to worship God in the context that He puts you in. And Naaman, and it's just so wonderful that, that Naaman does such a strange thing because I, I just pray that, that over and over when people read this, they think, well, that's odd. And they think about it and they go, well, what's going on here? He's being a witness. And so this next picture is Pastor Kumar. And this is the man that I wrote to you about who became a Christian before when the missionaries first started coming from the United States over to that area of India. And this is the man who was beaten relentlessly when he became a believer. And he actually traveled a great distance, was out of town. I couldn't really get all the details through the translation. It was getting kind of jumbled up what he was trying to tell me because he was getting emotional. But the gist of it was he became a believer. He came back to his little town that I was walking the streets with him as he's telling me this in this town, that the men of this town drug him out to the outskirts of town. And when I tell you he's... I mean, I could throw him all the way in the sound booth. He literally is the tiniest little oompa-loompa you've ever seen in your life. And he's just walking with me and he's telling me that they drug him out there and they beat him relentlessly. And I'm just gripped by this... By what's happening? And then he tells me, he said... I'm like, well, what happened? And he said, God gave me the words to say. And I said some words and it created dissension amongst the men. One had one arm, one had another arm, while two other ones were just pounding him. And he said, I spoke some words and it caused an argument between the men who were beating me and they sort of dropped me on the ground and began to argue amongst themselves and wandered off arguing and there I was and I crawled back home. And did he move away? No! Did he go to another town? No, he stayed right there and he kept on kept on telling people about Jesus. Then he got one convert. Then he got two converts. First he had to get his wife to believe. Then she finally believed. And then one then finally he made a room in his house and he'd have a few people come over and worship and then that led to a few more people and then he built this little shack out in front of his house and then people would come there and he turned it into the temple where people would come and worship God. And then there I am preaching in that very place standing in this man's pulpit I'm thinking I don't deserve to tie your shoes much less stand and preach in your pulpit and I'm preaching in his pulpit and as I'm preaching and the place is packed wall to wall packed bugs are everywhere there's birds flying around you know in the ceiling and it's just crazy and there's people everywhere and they're just listening to the gospel and there's some some commotion outside and I'm just letting it go And I'm thinking, well, Lord, if they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me now because I'm I know all the people are, you know, there's people listening and they can hear what I'm saying. And I'm talking about how, listen, if if the Hindu God was the real, true God, if that were real, if that were true, don't you think that someone would be flying halfway around the world to tell me about that God? No, there's nobody where I live talking about a magpie God. There's nobody telling me about a monkey God. Because you know why? Because it's not a real God. Then I look around. It's not a real God. About that time, the scratching noise comes around. And a man, uh, do I have a picture of him? No, I don't. there's a man crippled from the waist down who just drags his body in the dirt. And he drags himself over the threshold and down the center aisle as I'm preaching the gospel. He drags his lifeless body down the aisle, scoots to the side, and just plops right there. And I'm just thinking, dear God. Look at what you're doing. After the service, I I started talking to some of these. People and, and just meeting them and getting to know them and and that that young man has been got he he asked me to pray for him he had all sorts of uh, obviously problems because uh, you can't I mean listen it would be horrible to try to live in that condition in this context but in that context I mean I could barely survive in the state I'm in much less him and he just said pray for me. And, and I said, "Man, I will." And, and I started talking to him. And I, I said, "Are you a believer?" He said, "I'm a believer. Jesus Christ saved my life because that man, Mister Kumar, he came to my house and he told me about the one and only true God." And I'm just thinking, Lord, that's what it's about. This young lady, this last picture, this this young lady, she she waited for me after the service, and she. She stood there and, and waited and waited. And of course, it was all these people and they wanted to talk to me and, and take pictures. And so she waited and waited and waited. And finally, when everyone was gone and she, they knew we were flying out that day. And so I just had a little bit of time and I went over there and I began to talk to her. And, and she just began to tear up and she said, Pastor... Please pray for me. And I said, "Well, tell me what's going on." And she said, "I'm, I'm. All these people are are my Thai people. They're in the lowest class. They cannot advance themselves. They, they, the class system is horrible. There's no, there's no way out. There's no." In her marriage, there's no, there's, there's only one hope, and the only hope is education, and that's really not even a hope. And, and so she is, has been studying and studying. She's, she's probably 17 or 18 years old, and she says she studies 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's all she does is study, because there's two, two people, two from her clan will get an opportunity to pass a test to go to medical school, when in the actuality to become a nurse to maybe have the possibility to to get out of this horrific poverty. And so she began to tear up and so I began to pray for her. And then she said to me as I got done praying and I looked at her and she said, will you not forget me? And I said, I will not forget you. I will pray for you. And she said, how do I know you will pray for me? And I thought, I don't know. What am I going to do? And I remembered in my pocket, I had this little wooden Jesus fish necklace that Brennan had made for me. You know little Brennan Parker? She brought it to me out in the foyer before I went to India. And she gave me that and she would written a letter to the people of India. And so I reached in my pocket and I pulled that little pendant out and she would colored it. And I handed that girl that pendant and I said... I will pray for you. And I want you to look at this and remember that I will pray for you. And, and just in that simple act of... you know, and, and I'll be honest with you. I thought, why am I carrying this thing around in my pocket? And in that moment, I could not have done anything that would have meant any more to this young lady in her grave desperation to get one in a million chance to better herself. And I said, listen, you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Yes, sir, I have. I said, then you, you need not fear. You need not worry. He will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what trials, no matter what pain, no matter what persecution, He will walk beside you and He will... Care for you. And I don't know what your future holds. And I don't know about these tests. And I don't know about these stuff. But I know this. That one day, the sky is going to crack open. And He's coming back to get us. And when He does, we're all going to be together in glory. And then, you know, in the midst of the worst poverty and suffering and pain. And there's just no hope. There's the gospel. The hope of Christ in the midst of hopelessness. And you see, that's why we do what we do. That's why we go. That's why we teach. That's why we train. That's why we share. And listen, how hypocritical would it be of us to do it here and not there, to do it there and not here, or to not do it at all? Listen, we must be about the gospel mission. We must be a people zealous to see God glorified in all the earth. And I just want you to know that you are a fantastic people. And I am so thankful and so grateful for all that God allowed me to accomplish while I was there. And I, am, and, and I just want you to know that I don't say this lightly, but pastors from all over that region of India sat Hour, eight hours a day and listen to me systematically teach them A to Z how to make disciples. And I don't know what God's going to do, but I can tell you this. God showed me, I showed them, and I just got to believe that it's going to be glorious. And there's going to be people in glory... That were discipled by pastors that you will never recognize, that you will never know, but you were zealous to be, to pray and to give and to support and to be a part of. And that's what it's all about. And whether you go or whether I go, it doesn't matter. It just matters that the message goes and that we're faithful people in what God called us to do. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. And right now, there are churches in Brazil having church right now because what? Because God moved in our hearts to be a part of that. And I just hope and pray that we never grow weary and we never grow tired. And I know that that I can be a bit overwhelming and I can be a bit, you know, I can wear you out about this. But it's who I am because it's who God is and it's in my DNA. And it just provokes my spirit when I think about people lost and dying and going to an eternal hell, worshiping idols, when I know the gospel and you know the gospel. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support. Thank you for for just being the wonderful body that you are. And may we not grow content. And may we keep pressing and pushing. And that God would... I'm praying, I'm just going to tell you the truth, okay? So you can just get ready. Parents, you're going to freak out. I'm praying God's going to raise up missionaries to go to the worst, most horrific countries in all the world from this congregation. And it might be my son, it might be my daughter, and it might be your son or your daughter, but I'm praying God's going to do it. I'm praying He's going to do it. And I know that some of you are freaked out by that, but I'm praying He's going to do it. I'm praying it's you. I'm praying you'll just sell all you got, pack everything up and go and invest your life in raising up pastors and leaders and teachers. If that's what God calls you to do, we got to be zealous. Paul walked in on vacation to a place riddled with idols. And He went to gospel work. What a blessing. I don't know where you are tonight, but I hope and pray that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt the instant you close your eyes for the last time that you will be in the presence of the most glorious, unbelievable, most magnificent Savior that your mind cannot comprehend And there will be a multitude of people, every tribe, nation, tongue, language, worshiping God in one accord. And I cannot wait. And I pray that your heart beats to see the Gospel go forward. Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes. Father, we come before You and we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, for the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank You for just the record Lord, of his activity amongst such a a wayward people, God. I thank you that your scripture is still alive and well, and Lord, that today we can experience the very things that you detail, Father. And I'm so I'm so humbled and so grateful, Lord, for the opportunity to go. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that here in this people, Lord, that you'd raise up those called to give their life, to work for the gospel, to raise money so that the gospel goes forward, to, to translate Bible so that the gospel goes forward, to, to dig wells so that the gospel goes forward, Lord, that we would not be afraid, that we would know that the unstoppable mission of the gospel is the most glorious thing we can ever be a part of. Lord, I pray that we would be that people here. And so, Father, thank You. Thank You for the great opportunity we'll have tomorrow to share this good Word with the people we come in contact with, Lord. Oh, Father, we're so grateful and thankful. We ask You to now do what only You can do.